Well, if incarceration made a country safe, we'd be the safest country in the world because we're the most incarcerated. And we most certainly are not the safest country in the world. Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranik, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What do we have up for today, Alex? We are back to talking about Pete Buttigieg in our second episode where he's talking at a church led by civil rights leader Reverend William Barber. Now, Buttigieg has gained a lot of attention recently and is almost catching up to Joe Biden in most polls. And so we wanted to listen to how he's maintaining his initially unlikely lead in this competitive race. Now, before you listen, take a moment to go check out our Patreon page. You can find the link in the show notes below or by clicking the support us section on our website. And if you're a friend of the pod, contribute for just a few dollars and get access to unique and exclusive content. And now in this first clip, we're going to listen to Pete broaden his appeal on minority issues to a wider audience and use a frame busting technique that is a mark of captivating speakers. Now, let's take a listen. I want to ask you this. Do you see addressing voter suppression and gerrymandering as a part of that national project? Because mm. I don't see how we're going to get the political power to address these things legislatively if we write off the South and continue to leave the South in other areas victim to racial voter suppression that allows people to get in office who are adversely against dealing with the issues of ecological destruction. Absolutely right. I think one of the problems we have as a country is that the issues of systemic racism generally and racial voter suppression specifically are talked about as though they only impact people of color, as though they only impact those who are being suppressed. And while there is no question that the worst harms are against those who are directly discriminated against, the entire country, and in this case, the entire world, are made worse off because we do not make decisions as a country that incorporate the will of everybody who is impacted. And there was a time when it was assumed almost that, that uh, rural areas and, and workers would stand shoulder to shoulder in order to lift up those who were oppressed. The division of people of mutual interests, often along lines of race, harms everybody. And to me, democracy is the issue of how we deal with every other issue. Whether we're talking about Citizens United and the role of money in politics, or the gerrymandering that we were discussing, or all of the different forms of voter suppression that have been created. Uh, for my dime, I, I actually consider the uh, Electoral College itself to be an example of this problem. 
because it affected anybody who had to live under a presidency uh, that came about because the American people were overruled and we're living under one right now, which means everybody is experiencing the consequences of that distortion in our democracy. So here's a real moment where Buttigieg is able to, you know, get pushed out of his comfort zone a little bit because he is in, you know, a black church in the South and talking to, you know, a, a minority audience. And he's asked very, you know, pointed questions about race and about issues that affect people of color. And in this moment here, he's really showing why he appeals to so many conservatives and moderate Democrats and why he appeals to so many, you know, white voters in particular. And that's because when he's asked this question about the impact on people of color, he broadens it out. And so he's now, you know, answering the question by saying that, you know, these issues don't just impact people of color, they impact everybody. It's almost like the all lives matter answer uh, it's it's a way for him to you know say that these minority issues are everybody's issues, and so everybody needs to work towards them. It's you know it's interesting the way that he does that, and it certainly has a strong audience uh, among maybe white liberals. But this might be the reason why uh, he's not speaking in the same language as many minority voters and many people of color. Is because you know this is a um, this is not exactly speaking in their language, but he's speaking very well to conservatives and moderate Democrats and to white liberals, and that's something that's so important and something to really know about Pete Buttigieg in this moment. Now, I don't know if he had this answer planned, and if this was thought about ahead of time, or if this is his sort of instinctual. Uh, reaction to this type of a question, you have to imagine that it's planned because uh, he's just such a planning and methodical person. And to think that he had planned this and planned this delivery in this way to these types of questions really gives you insight into maybe what his thought process and calculations might be and maybe where his blind sides as a candidate might be as well. Yeah, Pete Buttigieg, his weakness has always been around minority voters, and his appeal to them really hasn't been very strong. And so we're hearing that here from his response when he's asked about these minority issues. It's a little bit of a litmus test for how is his campaign progressing on what he knows is his weak point. And so well, maybe he's getting there, but then again, maybe this is why he fails to resonate with many minorities. And so he talks here about how democracy is the issue of how we deal with every other issue. And, you know, it's interesting how he said that democracy is the issue, how we deal with every other issue. And then he starts to talk about the Electoral College. So I consider the Electoral College to be a part of this as well. And we're all living under this thing. And he's talking about how Donald Trump won the Electoral College, but not the popular vote. And we are all experiencing the consequences. And what does he mean by that? Well, the consequences doesn't sound like a very positive. There's not a very positive connotation to that when someone says consequences. It's something that you would oftentimes hear with bad news that was being delivered. And so he's linking that idea to the Electoral College 
And it is so interesting here how his direction of focus of who he is attracting there, who, who really cares about that? Well, maybe people there in the church care about the Electoral College, but then again, maybe he's just going back to his standard politician talking points that are more generic than they are specific to the question. Now, in this next clip, this is really one of my favorite clips of this entire talk. Pete Buttigieg is asked about immigration and the immigrant community. And yes, this is another minority issue in a certain kind of way, but it's a little bit different because he has a very prepared and planned response here, but he also gets into making it more human and making it more familiar in a way that we have seen some politicians do, but this traditionally has not been a strength for Pete Buttigieg. So let's listen to how he does this in this next clip where he's asked about his plan to address the crisis in the immigrant community. We know a lot about family separation at the border. There are, there are thousands and thousands of families that have been separated. What's your plan to immediately address this crisis that's been created for the immigrant community by the current administration? So what's happened is a, a crisis has been created, a humanitarian crisis has been created by the choices this administration is making. And we saw it in our community, too. I saw the whole west side of our city, a part of the west side, basically shut down just over the rumor of an ice raid. I saw someone very similar to the person you're describing, a guy who had lived in, in our area for about 20 years, and uh, registered, went in every year with ice, that as he was trying to get his green card sorted out. And this first year of this administration, when he went in, he didn't come back out. Business owner, parent, and I found myself meeting with all of his friends and supporters. By the way, all of them conservative Republicans, cons white conservative Republicans who lived in that area, who were furious because they didn't think that deportation was going to happen to Roberto. They loved Roberto. He's a good guy. And found myself looking into the eyes of his eight-year-old son, trying to think of something to tell him that would be true because I couldn't say, it's okay, you're going to get your dad back. In the end, the whole family decided they had to move to Mexico, even though the kids had only ever known our part of Indiana as home. And this does not make America safer. On the, on the contrary, the climate of fear makes us all worse off. I'll give you a simple example. If the administration succeeds in pressuring local law enforcement to do immigration work for them, as they have pressured us, and we have resisted, then a lot of people are going to hesitate to speak to law enforcement at all. One of the things we did was we created a local ID card just to say that you can be a card-carrying resident of the city of South Bend. And I use the word resident because for my purposes, as far as whether we're going to come to your house when you call 911 or whether we're going to pave the road for you in the city, it doesn't matter what your citizenship status is. You're a resident, you're part of this community. And so we created that card so that if you're interacting with law enforcement, or for that matter, just trying to get through life, pick up a prescription or something, you had a way to do it. You can't vote with it, you can't drive with it, you can't fly with it, but you could at least get through life. Uh -huh. So we need to build up that sense of belonging nationally, too. What does that actually look like? Well, first of all, the laws themselves need to change. There's this whole debate over the enforcement of the laws, because there are horrific enforcement practices like family separation that need to end on day one. 
for-profit detention centers for children, by the way, is a category of thing that should not even That's exist true. and will end. But you see, the, the enforcement priorities will always be out of kilter if the law doesn't make sense. And you look at the arbitrary caps on who, how many folks can come from which countries, which aren't connected to any reality right now. You look at the bureaucracy. Uh, you look at the lack of a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented folks who are here. We need that, especially for dreamers. We fixed the law. Then, in addition to the, the overall growth of the country being supported, it becomes simpler to manage our border in a way that matches our, our laws and our values at the same time. So here we have another moment where Pete Buttigieg is able to speak in the language that a lot of the Democrats aren't able to speak in. So Pete here is talking about, you know, well, first he's talking about something that he doesn't really have a whole lot of experience in. Um, he's a mayor of a town in Indiana, but somehow frames it all in a way that makes it seem as though he has so much more experience and know-how than he actually does. But one of the most important ways that he does that is by appealing to sort of this uh, this rule-following, law-following sort of um, mentality or paradigm of thought that appeals to a lot of people who are moderate and more conservative. And so what he's doing here is he's talking about this ID card that helps you get through life. And so he emphasizes how, you know, you won't be able to vote with it. You won't be able to drive with it, but you can get through life with it. And it's uh, a way for him to say that, you know, no, we're not going to give you, you know, total amnesty or something like that, but we are going to have rules that you can follow that are going to be humane. And so this is sort of walking a fine line that a lot of a, like a lot of Democrats don't want to um, walk on. They would prefer to maybe pander to the base or shy away from the issue altogether. And um, then you've got the Republicans who are hard on the other side of strict rule following, uh, you know, here are the rules, you're out of this country. And what he's saying is that, well, let's just make new rules that you know, might not be everything that the Democrats want, the liberals want, and it's not really everything that the Republicans want. But, you know, we have these structures in place that will give these, this, these people who don't have structure, a legal structure right now, a new legal structure. And here is what it is. And so it is to somebody who believes in the rule of law, whatever that might be, or a law-abiding, law um, rule-following uh, mentality, which a lot of conservatives and you know more moderate Democrats have or might be predisposed to or receptive to, this is something that appeals to them, and this is something that they're really going to like. Yeah, so right from the very beginning, Buttigieg is asked, what is your plan to immediately address this crisis that has been created? And notice how he doesn't answer the question. He instead flips and starts talking about what has happened. And so he starts with the words, what's happened is the current administration has done this. And this is what I saw in South Bend. And this is what happened. 
And he talks about that for a good 30 seconds to a minute before actually getting into any sort of semblance of answering the question. And he really doesn't answer the question, actually. He doesn't actually give us a plan. He just gives us values of what he expects that we would have happen. And so when he diverts from the question in that way and he starts talking about what has happened, this is a technique in NLP called pacing current experience. And so what's happening is he's going back to what he knows. He's going back to what can be proven. Pacing current experiences means that you are labeling or acknowledging what is happening for a person in the ongoing present moment. Now, the key to this is, of course, is that none of these people were with Pete in South Bend when he saw all of this stuff, but it's plausible enough that they will believe him in his role as mayor to say this is what occurred. And they he ties it back enough to what's happening in their current environment in their life where they're able to say, hey, this is, you know, what's going on. And then he starts to make it a little bit more personal. And he makes it personal by talking about Roberto. Now, is that really his name? Who knows? We don't know what the guy's name is. But there was this guy, business owner, parent, and he would go in for his check-ins with ICE. And then one day he went to ICE and he didn't come back out. Now think about that as a as a story arc, right? He went to ICE and he didn't come back out. This is like the character in the movie now coming to a big challenge. Something negative has happened. We need to do something about this now. It's at that point where are we going to rise up and save the day or are we going to continue to let the evil in the world win out? That's where we are now in the story. And he builds it up for us to tell us the community reaction. All of these people, the white conservative Republicans, they were furious because they didn't think it would happen to Roberto. Not Roberto. He was a good guy, right? He wasn't the people that Donald Trump is talking about on stage who were doing all these negative things. Roberto was a good person. He had an eight-year-old son. I went to the son. I could not tell him it's okay that you're going to get your dad back. I could not tell that to his son. And so what he's suggesting here is that Republicans aren't in touch with the individuals or that the people, and that if they were in touch with those people, if they did actually know people like Roberto, then their policies would be different. But the reason why the Republican policies are the way they are is because they don't know the people, because it's not on a personal enough level, except for when things like that happen in South Bend, and then, again, according to Pete, they kind of change their idea about this in their mind and, you know, we're led to believe that soon they might not be thinking that same way um, again. And so there's another little thing that he, you know, does here, which is that as people start to applaud, and you'll see this, the politicians do this, people start to applaud and immediately starts to speed up. He starts to raise his voice up a little bit. Now, this is a technique of taking and capturing all that all that energy of the audience and really moving it forward. So you can see why this is this clip was one of my favorite ones here because it's really amazing how he took such an innocuous question, one that he isn't even an expert about, and really spun it into a wonderful story arc that helped us go somewhere really cool. All right, now in this next clip, we're going to be talking about incarceration 
and really how that's affecting, you know, people in different communities and what that exactly means uh, with the prison system. Quick follow-up on law and enforcement, because as we talk to folks who are being impacted by this issue across the country, you know, in the same rooms, often uh, folks from poor and black communities will say, you know, we know something about over-enforcement of laws in our community. Uh, mass detention and mass incarceration, you know, are not just about this administration, but yep. I think they're certainly deeply connected. What's your proposal to address mass incarceration? Well, if incarceration made a country safe, we'd be the safest country in the world because we're the most incarcerated. And we most certainly are not the safest country in the world. Mass incarceration must end. It's that simple. So I'm proposing that we cut it by half. Now, that's going to take a, uh, a level of uh, action with the states that has to happen across the country, but the federal government can drive it. That's and we can do it by changing sentencing. For example, sentencing on drug possession, where it's clear that the incarceration is doing more harm than the original offense. We've seen a lot of that in our community. Um, it means making sure, in fact, I would say that incarceration should never be a response simply to possession. Because we know that criminalizing addiction doesn't work. That's part of it. Using the clemency powers of the presidency in the best way is part of it. Uh, making sure that, that we change sentencing guidelines is part of it. Uh, again, from a power and economic perspective, uh, we're also always going to have a pressure toward more incarceration as long as some folks are making profit off of incarceration, which is why there should not be for-profit private prisons in this country. We'll just be better off when we don't have them. All right, so now he's talking about incarceration, and, well, he gives us this comparison. If incarceration made a country safe, we'd be the safest country in the world, and we're not. So what he's doing here is he's building this alternate reality where people are saying that incarceration means safety. And he kind of frames it in that way. There's these people who believe that, and then he answers the question from that frame, from that perspective. Now, this is plausible because everyone knows someone who believes that incarceration makes us safer. But of course, what he's deleting here, what he's not explaining is who is being incarcerated? For what reasons are they being incarcerated? Let's remember, it's not all nonviolent drug offenses, right? And who exactly would be let out of prison? He doesn't explain this. All he tells us is that it's just going to be cut in half. So then another big point that he has in this moment is that he's really, uh, you know, taking some strikes at the for-profit prison industry. And one of the ways that he does that is, of course, taking a cheap shot at the lowest hanging fruit, which are, you know, prisons for children, essentially for-profit for prisons for children, which is something that can really galvanize a lot of people to support his side. So what he's doing is he takes the most extreme example and, you know, sort of extrapolates that out onto the whole and like, isn't this terrible thing bad? That's just like this other similar thing, which is also now bad as well. And so the the whole system now needs to be reimagined and rethought in the way that I'm talking. And so he uses this, he has this quote here. Remember, from a power and economic perspective, we're always going to have a pressure toward more incarceration, so long as some folks are making profit off of incarceration. And so 
what he's doing here is he's he, first he has an assumption that because of whatever power and economic perspective that this is that he's talking about, whatever that might be, which you can make up in your mind, that means that we're always going to have pressure toward more incarceration. And so what he's saying here is really nothing, but it leads you down a thought process where you can build your own, you, you can build your own path toward the solution that he is presenting which is to get rid of for-profit prisons and that this is bad and he doesn't really say how he's going to do it he doesn't actually say what the solution is but he speaks again in values in broad contexts and and, and really you know take somebody out of the the very concrete, minute details and only the details that he's presenting, like the childhood prisons, and then extrapolates that out further and further and further until now we're just talking about big, broad issues of uh, power and economic perspectives and, you know, the pressures of the world pushing toward more incarceration. And in, he's really just chunked this out so far. And so that's what makes Pete so persuasive is that he's able to pivot away from, you know, concrete solutions to these broad values that just can appeal to everybody. All right. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And if you really enjoy the show, please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. Now, that's the best place to rate and review us so that everyone can know how much you enjoyed the show. Please rate us five stars. That's very much appreciated. Let us know what you're thinking of these shows. Send us an email. You can click the Contact Us button up on our website, as well as tweet at us. That's at SubliminalPod. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And also remember to contribute to the Patreon that if you are a friend of the pod, please remember to support the show. Your support really matters, and we're looking forward to seeing you again next week. Bye.